Well, what do you think of when you think of the book of Jonah? Many of us probably think of a fantastical story about a man who was swallowed by a great fish, even a great whale. We think of a story, a book that's perfect for a Sunday school or VBS lesson. Now, in the face of it, this short story does seem quite fantastical. In fact, many people today interpret Jonah merely as a quaint fable, allegory, or parable that teaches some timeless moral truth that can apply to our lives. However, in Matthew chapter 12, which is a chapter that we will consider in subsequent weeks, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus interprets both Jonah and the story of Jonah as being both an historical person and an historical narrative. And so if we grant Jesus to be who he said he was, and we, if we grant that his teaching is valid, then we also should view Jonah as a literary piece of history. It's a historical narrative. And this historical narrative is given to us as the people of God to instruct us in godliness, to convict us of our own sin. Now as we walk through the pages of this short book, Lord willing, we will be able to see ourselves in Jonah, in his sin, and in his rebellion. However, this book is also given to us in order to remind us, and even to give us a fuller understanding of the gospel. This book illuminates the person, work, and mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah himself is a type, a shadow, a representation of Christ himself and his ministry on our behalf. And so Jonah is both law and gospel. So this morning, as we introduce this book and this story, I'd like us to think about this central question. Who was Jonah? Now, we all probably have a a superficial understanding of who Jonah was. He was that guy in the Bible who was swallowed by a whale. But I'd like us to dig a bit deeper and consider who was Jonah. And this will set us up well as we continue on in the subsequent weeks considering this story. So who was Jonah? This morning, I'd like us to to consider three things. First, we'll consider that Jonah was a prophet, Jonah was called, and Jonah fled. So Jonah was a prophet, Jonah was called, and Jonah fled. Now, we know that Jonah himself was an actual prophet, a prophet of God who was called to minister to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II, King Jeroboam II. Now, as a reminder, the the people of Israel were, were torn into two distinct kingdoms with two distinct monarchies shortly after the reign of Solomon. So 10 of the tribes of Israel resided in the north, and they had their own distinct monarchy. And then the tribes of Judah and Benjamin resided in the south with the capital city of Jerusalem being their capital city, and they continued the Davidic monarchy. And so Jonah was called as a prophet to minister to the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of Jeroboam II. We also know that one of the tasks that God called Jonah to do was to prophesy blessing on behalf of the people of Israel. He specifically prophesied that under the reign of Jeroboam II, 
Israel would expand her borders and take land that had previously been taken away from them from the Assyrians. And I'm sure Jonah loved doing this. He was able to prophesy blessing, tidings of good news for his own people, the people of Israel. During this time under Jeroboam II, Israel experienced much prosperity. In fact, it was a time of great national pride for that northern kingdom. We know this in part from what we read in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. In this verse we read, Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah was a historical person, a prophet of Yahweh himself, who was called to minister in a distinct time and place. Now this reminds us that God used the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings. Actual people, actual people who served as prophets, priests, and kings to foreshadow Christ ahead of time. God used both the sin and rebellion which then served as a foil for the blameless character of our Lord, but he also used the imperfect righteousness of these figures to foreshadow the perfect righteousness of our Lord. So Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet under uh, the reign of Jeroboam II. And this prophet was called. He was called. He was called by God to preach to the inhabitants of Nineveh. Jonah as a prophet was called. He was commissioned to preach to the inhabitants of Nineveh. This is what we read in the opening verses of the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, God is calling Jonah, he's commissioning Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, to call out against Nineveh. Now, part of what this implies is that God was calling Jonah to remind the Ninevites of the justice of Yahweh. A justice that judges sin. But also what's implied here is that God wants Jonah to call the Ninevites to repentance and thus remind them of the mercy and grace of Yahweh. Now this call likely would have taken Jonah a bit off guard. It would have been confusing, perplexing, and uh, and even a little off-settling for Jonah. And to understand why this would have taken Jonah off guard, we need to understand a little bit about the significance of Nineveh. Now, where was Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, just the northeast of Palestine, the Promised Land. And in this book, the author refers to Nineveh as a great city. It's the capital city of Assyria. And during the time of Jonah's ministry, which likely was in the 8th century BC, Assyria was becoming a formidable power that was beginning to make Israel quite uneasy. Now, when God uh, established the Mosaic Covenant with the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, he was very clear with them. He told the people of Israel 
that if they were disobedient to the law of God, if they began to worship him the way that the pagan nations worship their God, if they began to practice the abominable practices that the pagan nations practice, then God will raise up a foreign nation from the east to destroy his covenant people and take them out of the promised land. God was very clear about the terms of that covenant. Now we read in, in 2 Kings 14, 24, that Jeroboam II, again this, this king who, who Jonah was ministering under, Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So was Jeroboam II a righteous, God-fearing king? No, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He continued in the ways of the first Jeroboam. And what did that first Jeroboam do? Well, he was the one who made golden calves and put them in both Bethel and Dan to be an alternative for the northern kingdom of Israel so that they wouldn't have to go down south to the Jerusalem temple. And Jeroboam II followed in the wicked ways of the first Jeroboam. In fact, Amos and Hosea were prophets during the same time in which Jeroboam II was reigning, and they were prophesying impending judgment upon the northern kingdom. So Jonah, as he receives this call and commission, may have been putting the pieces together. He may have been seeing the writing on the wall, as it were. Israel is engaging in idolatry. They're breaking the terms of this covenant that God had, had made with them. Assyria is becoming this mighty nation to the east, and there are growing tensions between Israel and Assyria at this time. Jonah's probably thinking to them, himself, why would I want to go to Nineveh, a Gentile nation that may be used as God's instrument to enact the curses of God's covenant? Why would I want any, anything to do with that? Now, another reason why this call may have taken Jonah off guard is because this was a very unprecedented call. Ordinarily, Old Testament Hebrew prophets were called by God to minister to the people of God, to Israel. And they were called to be covenant lawyers, meaning they were called to remind the people of impending judgment that would be coming their way if they did not repent in accordance with that Mosaic covenant. They were to remind the people of God of the curses of that covenant that God made with them at the foot of Mount Sinai. But they also were called to remind the people of coming blessing that would be theirs in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant. And so they were there to announce both blessings and curses in accordance with God's covenantal relationships with his people. Now what would have surprised Jonah is that this is not what God's calling him to do. What is God calling him to do? To go to a foreign nation, a Gentile nation, who are enemies of God's covenant people, who may be used as God's instrument to curse his own people. This would have been a very unprecedented call for this Hebrew prophet. Now, how does Jonah react to this call, this commission from Yahweh himself? 
Well, again, uh, notice how God calls Jonah. He says, arise, arise, and go to Nineveh. Now, in verse 3, we see that, that Jonah does arise, but he doesn't rise to obey God's commission. He rises in rebellion. He rises to flee. This is what we see in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah, Jonah rose, but he rose not to go east to Nineveh. He rose to go as far west as he could. Now Joppa was a, a, a little port city on the coast, and it was not controlled by Israel at this time. And he merely goes to Joppa to pay for a ticket to take him to Tarshish. Now, we don't exactly know where, where Tarshish was, but it likely was somewhere on the Mediterranean coastlands. It may have been in the southwest part of Spain. So again, God was telling him to go east, and which direction does he go? He goes west, almost as far west as he could go. He rebels against God's commission and call upon his life. Now, this reaction from a prophet of God is also very unprecedented. This was an unprecedented call, and this was also an unprecedented response. Ordinarily, prophets of Yahweh did not go against a direct commission from their God. That is something that you didn't do. For instance, in Amos 3.8, the prophet Amos says, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The lion has roared, prophets prophesy. You don't go against the commission of Yahweh. But Jonah does. Unprecedented call, an unprecedented response. So why does Jonah Jonah respond in this way? Why does he rebel against this commission? It can maybe be easy for us to to kind of turn up our noses on on Jonah for acting in such an irrational way, but but I think we would do well to try to put ourselves in his his shoes and and to think about what he would have been experiencing, the perplexity that he would have faced as he received this call and commission from God. Now, going off of, of what I previously said, Jonah, as a Hebrew prophet, was likely a loyalist to his people. You could even say he was a nationalist. He cared a lot about the interests of that northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, we know in 2 Kings 14 that God had previously used him to prophesy blessing for the people of Israel. And he probably loved doing that. He cared about the prosperity and flourishing of his own people. And so I can imagine that he didn't like the idea of prophesying a blessing upon a Gentile nation who may be their enemies and serve as God's instrument to destroy them. And there may be a a good parallel here with the prophet Elisha. Now, many of us are are probably familiar with Elijah and Elisha. And God had told the prophet Elijah, and these prophets minister not that far uh, before the prophet of Jonah. And Elijah, God told Elijah that he would be used to anoint Hazahal, who who was a court official in Syria or Aram, that he would anoint Hazahal. Hazael as king of Aram. Now we know that Elijah doesn't do this. He doesn't fulfill this task, but rather his successor Elisha does. And so in 2 Kings, we read that Elisha goes to Damascus 
And in Damascus, the current king of Aram or Syria, Ben-Hadad, is sick. He's ill. And Ben-Hadad realizes that there's a prophet of Yahweh in their midst. And so he sends one of his court officials, Hazael, to go meet with this prophet of God and inquire as to whether or not he will die of this sickness or this illness. And so Hazael goes to Elisha and he says, My Lord, my master, will our king die of this sickness? And Elisha tells him, yes. Yes, he will. He will perish from this illness that he has. And then we read that Elisha looks intently into the eyes of Hazael. And then he just starts weeping. He starts sobbing. And Hazael asks Elisha, well, what's wrong, my Lord? Well, why are you crying? Why are you sobbing? Why are you weeping? And this is what Elisha says. He says, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael confusedly looks at Elisha and says, what is your servant that he should do this great thing? And then Elisha responds and says, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king of, over Syria. And then just a few chapters later, in 2 Kings 13, we read that now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. So imagine the predicament that Elisha would have felt. He was being called by God to, in a sense, bless the people of Syria of Aram. But in blessing them, he's also cursing his own people because Hazael will then be, be raised up to oppress the people of Israel. And that's why he's weeping when he's giving this announcement. And I'm sure that Jonah felt himself to be in a similar position. God was calling him to bless the Ninevites. And it's the Ninevites, the Assyrians, who would be used by God to bring about the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. I'm sure he felt like he was between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> and this is part of the reason why he decides to get out of town. And twice in these uh, three verses, we read that Jonah sought to flee the presence of God. He sought to flee the presence of God. Now, what, what, what does this mean? What was Jonah trying to do? Did Jonah really think that if he got to Tarshish, he would be away from the jurisdiction of Yahweh? I don't think so. I think Jonah's theology was better than that. I don't think that if he, he thought that if he went to Tarshish, he would no longer be under God's sovereign control or, 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 uh, or uh, jurisdiction. Rather, uh, I think what, what Jonah is getting at is connected to his prophetic office. Now, ordinarily, Hebrew prophets received revelation, calls, commissions from God in the promised land amongst the covenant community. That's where prophets received revelation from God. And Jonah knew this. So he thought, I don't like the revelation that I'm receiving from God, and so what am I to do? I'm to get out of the promised land, flee from the covenant community of God, and then God will stop speaking to me. So really what Jonah's trying to do is he's trying to flee the word of God. He wants God to stop speaking to him because he doesn't like what God's telling him to do. He probably wants to quiet his own conscience by fleeing from the word of God. Throughout scripture, we see that the presence of God is associated with God's revelatory speech. In Amos 8, the prophet Amos tells the people of Israel that there's going to be a famine in the land. 
This famine isn't going to be a famine of bread or water. It's going to be a famine of the words of God. People will be going to and fro, searching, searching for the presence of God, but God will be silent. He will not speak. And so throughout Scripture, we see that God's presence is associated with his revelatory speech. So when you read that Jonah's fleeing the presence of God, you can really substitute that phrase with the word of God. He's fleeing the word of God. He's wanting to get away from God's speech, his call, and his commission. And he thinks that if he goes to Tarshish, a Gentile area, then God will stop speaking to him, stop bothering him, stop plaguing his own conscience. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to do exactly what Jonah does here in this passage. And what happens when we are confronted with the law of God? What happens when we are rebuked by God's law? When God's law calls us to do an about face? What are we tempted to do in those moments? We're tempted to flee the presence of God by shutting the word of God. By just neglecting uh, family devotions with our spouses, with our families. We're, we're tempted to just stop going to church or, or at least not going to a church that truly preaches the word as law and gospel and that has elders who exercise oversight over their people. We're, we're tempted to neglect and disregard the admonitions of pastors, elders, and even Christians within our own circles of life and community. That's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to flee the presence of God by fleeing the word of God. We want God to stop speaking to us because we don't like what he is saying. And so we would do well to consider where in our life we're tempted to flee the presence of God by fleeing the word of God. Where in our life are we fleeing God's call to love a difficult person? Where in our life are we fleeing God's will for our lives defined in those ten words and as summarized by Jesus as love God and love our neighbor? Our natural sinful inclination is to flee God's call in our lives. But yet we are called to embrace it regardless of whether or not we see wisdom in that call or whether or not we like it. Now the church also is tempted to do what Jonah does in this passage. Jonah doesn't like God's call. Jonah actually thinks that it's not a very wise commission. Jonah thinks that he knows better than God. And that what's best for the northern kingdom of Israel is if he flees Israel and doesn't bless the people of Nineveh. And we as a church are tempted to do the same thing. We're tempted to run the church according to our wisdom rather than God's wisdom. God's word is clear, just as God's call upon Jonah's life was clear. God's word is perspicuous. It's clear. In fact, we just finished the book of Titus, which is jam-packed with principles about how the church is to conduct herself. We consider the mission of the church, how the mission of the church, like the Apostle Paul, is to uh, labor for the faith, hope, and knowledge of the elect of God through the preaching of the word. That's the authority, mission, and task of the church. We consider how the church is not to be independent, but it's to be connected, federated, denominated with other churches. As Paul told Titus to appoint elders in every town as he directed him. We consider the office of elder. Uh, the church is not to be governed by an every member, every member ministry. There are offices within the church. And Paul says that elders are to be faithful men of virtue who hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Elder, elders are not to be experts in every domain of life, but they are to be competent and faithful to the word of God and the confessions of the church. 
Uh, we considered what Titus as a minister is to preach. He is to preach the law, the virtue that accords with sound doctrine. He's also to preach the grace of God, which saves and sanctifies. Elders are to exercise discipline by rebuking those who contradict sound doctrine so that they may be sound in the faith. And when it comes to a divisive person, warn them once and then twice and have nothing more to do with them. Paul spoke about the covenant community and how relationships are to be fostered within that covenant community. All those principles and more were in three short chapters of the book of Titus. So Paul is clear about how the church is to conduct herself. Now, why do so many churches disregard these important principles today? Well, some do it out of ignorance, but others do it because they just don't see much wisdom behind those principles. They think that enacting these principles will actually lead to a lack of attendance. It will kill the bottom line of the budget. It will kill the church as a platform. And so like Jonah, they can begin to think that their wisdom trumps God's wisdom when it comes to how the church should be run. There's always a temptation for the church to act pragmatically rather than out of principle. And we, as church members, also can fall into this trap as we desire the church to be recreated according to our preferences, our wisdom, rather than the wisdom that we find in the Word of God. So yes, Jonah rebels. Yes, Jonah flees the commission of God, but we do the very same thing as individuals and as churches, and thus we are to heed, heed this example. Well, throughout this book, we will continue to see that Jonah serves as a type of Christ. He, he, he foreshadows Christ ahead of time, and in these, these short three verses before us, Jonah serves as a foil for Christ. Of course, here Jonah flees the commission of God, but when Jesus comes onto the scene, we see that Jesus does the very opposite. As the true prophet of God, Jesus receives God's commission with an obedient spirit. Now, when did Jesus receive the commission from his father? Well, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, what we refer to as the covenant of redemption. Jesus, Jesus received the commission from his father to come to this earth and win a people for himself. And what did Jesus do? Did he stay where he was? Did he go in the opposite direction? No, he came down the form of a manger, a baby in a manger. In fact, we read this in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 39, when Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came down to bless us, his enemies. The people that the Father gave him were the Father's enemies. When Jesus drank the cup of his Father's wrath, it was the sins of his bride in that cup. And so when we hear God's will for our lives in the law, we, we are indeed are tempted to rebel, tempted to flee. And in those moments, we need to remember Jesus, the greater Jonah. Jesus obeyed this commission so perfectly that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus obeyed this commission. He obeyed this, this commission so that we might have a privileged status. A status of being able to stand before a holy and pure God. Not naked and ashamed, but clothed and confident. Jesus, through his obedience, gives us the status the privileged status of being able to stand before a holy and pure God, not naked and ashamed, but clothed and confident. That's the benefit we receive because Jesus did the opposite of what Jonah did. 
And as those who have this privileged status, we also have a privileged commission as the children of God. We, as the children of God, are commissioned to show forth the love of God, a love that keeps no record of wrongs and a love that acts as if justice has been satisfied. And so we have both this privileged status and commission as those who are found in Jesus, this greater Jonah. So let us pray.